0: Well, here's what I believe in my core, is that as unbelievable and truly this is an outlandish story, that it speaks something into our cores, that there's something wired deep into each one of us, deep into our humanness that just longs for the life and what is at the core of this story, that we are people who are made to experience life. And that's why we're drawn to this. That's why this is such a big deal. No matter where you are this morning, as you come into this space, you're wondering, you're skeptical, you believe, you don't believe, you're curious. There's something about this day that speaks to the inner core of our reality. And I think we see it all around us. I remember a number of years ago watching the movie Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd and um, Morgan Freeman, I think? No, Tommy Lee Jones. Two very different actors. (laughs) But I remember watching this movie and there's this scene and and Ashley Judd has been accused of killing her husband, goes away to jail, and he has this whole other life that he starts unbeknownst to her, she finds him, the whole deal. When she finds him, he knocks her out, puts her in a grave, they're in New Orleans, puts puts her in a casket, which is inside one of those old school um, uh, tombs. And she wakes up and naturally a little frightened in the dark, and she finds a lighter and, and lights it and realizes that she's in a grave next to a dead corpse. Naturally a little nervous at that point, point. and the next image is the light shining through the window in the tomb, and the window in the tomb has this cross as it lights down onto this grave. She finds a gun, she shoots her way out, and you're emotions are starting to build up because it's like everything's going to be okay. And she takes a vase in the tomb, throws it through the window, which once again has the cross and really cool imagery, gets out. And at the end of the movie, the best scene in the entire movie, she comes to the soccer field where her son is playing soccer. And he comes running towards her. And he's just 10, 11, 12, whatever it might be. And he looks at his mom and he says, they told me you were dead. And her response is, no, sweetheart. And there's something in us that is wired for experiences like that, like we know and see and experience life. Recently, there has been an onslaught of interest in sort of people who've had near-death experiences, right? Uh, there was a doctor, a neurosurgeon, Eben Alexander, who wrote a book about it. it was interviewed in Time by Oprah. But he talked about this experience that he had where he died for a little bit and saw something beyond and then came back. And there have been a number of those. I was at Barnes & Noble's yesterday. There was a whole table of books like that. And the validity of those stories, whatever, I'm not here to argue that. But I think it points to and draws something that we have this desire, we have this interest that maybe this isn't the end of the story. Maybe there's more to the lives that we live. We're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning before we jump into it and talk about this. Let me pray for us. God, would you speak words of life this morning for each one here? For each one here? Pray this in your name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. All God's people said... Amen. As we read this, try and put yourselves in the emotions of this text. This is about Jesus' followers who had given up everything to follow this Jesus who said that he was going to be king, and now he's died. And you've heard me say before, a dead king is not that good of a king. A dead king is not worth following. And so you can sense the emotions of where they are as we come to John chapter 20. Early. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, we'll come back to her in verse 11, she went to the tomb. Like, why? He's dead. Why why does she go to the tomb? She saw that the stone had been removed away from the entrance. So she ran to Simon Peter and another disciple, the one Jesus loved. There's going to be more running in John chapter 20 than the entirety of all the other Gospels. People are just, something has happened. They're running. They're telling people. They're screaming. They're shouting about it. And the one that Jesus loved, this weird reference in this verse, John, the writer of this Gospel, is actually talking about himself. I don't know if he has some weird narcissism thing going on, but he's going to make a few third-person references here. So she runs sees Peter, sees John, says, they have taken the Lord. And who's the day? We don't know. But she thinks somebody has robbed the tomb. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. Both of them were running. And then one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture, the other disciple ran faster than Peter. He reached the tomb first. You wonder if John, when he wrote this gospel, was thinking, I know this is going to be around for a long time, so I'm just going to stick it to Peter for thousands of years. People will know that John is faster than Peter. So good. Some people would look at the beginning of this story and say that the followers of Jesus had removed the body. But I think if you read the text for what it is, there's a reason that they're running. They're not running because they know what had happened. They're not running because they had a part in what has happened. They're running to find out what happened. They'd given up hope. Jesus had died. Now this tomb is empty. What is going on? Is there perhaps a glimmer of hope? And we would be doing the same exact thing. Verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. But he didn't go in. That's John. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb. And if you read the gospel, it's like, yeah, that's his personality, right? Just right in. He saw the strips of linen lying there. He also saw funeral cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place. It was separate from the linen. And you, can you imagine what they're thinking? They don't know the whole of the story yet. They don't know all that has gone on, but they come up and they see that the linens are still lying there. And here's their first thought. If somebody robbed the grave, the linens wouldn't be lying there. They would have just taken the body all wrapped up and everything and chucked it out of there, right? They're thinking, why are the linens still lying here? What is it in this story? Verse 8. The disciple who had reached the tomb first, again rubbing it in, also went inside. And this is great. He saw and believed doesn't know the whole story yet. In fact, in this time in the first century, the idea of a resurrection, the idea of somebody coming back to life, it was not common belief. The Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, they did not believe that there would one day be an ultimate resurrection. So that, that someone could come back to life was a common, a, a, not a common idea. But John... Somehow, in this moment, whatever part of the story that he gets, which, by the way, should be encouragement to all of us, you don't have to get it all. It's the journey. But he sees and believes. Don't you wonder if in that moment he's thinking back to Jesus raising Lazarus and some of the dots are beginning to be connected in his mind and his heart. Verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Verse 11. This is great. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she cried, she bent over to look into the tomb. The resurrection story in the Gospels tells us more about the kingdom of God than you can imagine. Mary Magdalene, first person there, More than likely, she's the Mary from Luke chapter 8 who had seven demons removed from her. She's also a woman in the first century. Her eyewitness of this account wouldn't even matter in court. And in God's story, things begin to be turned upside down, even at the first moments of the resurrection. This world that God is going to renew, remake, and is beginning to do that now at this moment, it looks different. Everyone matters. Verse 12, she saw two angels dressed in white. They were seated where Jesus' body had been. One of them was where Jesus' head had been laid. The other sat where his feet had been placed. They're dressed in white. It's the imagery of life. If it was a funeral only, it would have been dark. It would have been black clothes. They're dressed in white. Life is going to win. Verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And it's classic of men to ask Questions we know the answer to, right? Why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said. I know where they have put him. And she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. So she said, sir, don't, did you carry him away? Tell me where you put him. Then I will go and get him. Who are you looking for? Again, the imagery of this verse is profoundly beautiful. That her first thought is that Jesus is the gardener. What brings our minds and our hearts all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. That at this moment, at the beginning of the resurrection story, the new creation, things being made right, that is beginning to usher in at this moment. And this new and better Adam, Jesus through his resurrection, is doing something radical. And John wants us in on that part of the story, the new creation, the recreation, is beginning now. And then verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she doesn't recognize him until she's called by name. Isn't that cool? She doesn't recognize him until she's called by name. She turned towards him, then she cried out in the Aramaic language, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Instead, go to those who believe in me. Tell them, I am ascending to my Father, listen, and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Up until this point in the Gospels, when Jesus talked about his Father, it was his Father. The disciples were his disciples, his followers, maybe even his friends. But now a new relationship because of the resurrection is being made possible that it's their father. Things are beginning to change. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. She said, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. From from this moment, through the story of the early church in Scripture, we begin to see all the significance of the resurrection. But the most important point is that for the early followers who got this, this idea of a resurrection changed everything. Changed everything. Tim Keller and T. Wright put it this way. In the first century, there were many other messianic movements whose would-be messiahs were executed. You have to understand, there there were other people that came in saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the deliverer, and every time they were killed by Rome and the religious leaders. However, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event Jewish revolutionaries whose leaders had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape, arrest themselves, had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. And here it is. Unless, of course, he was. There is nothing bigger in the course of human history, than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's what it meant in the first century. Here's what it meant to the followers of Jesus, to those 500 plus people that he came to and saw after he was resurrected, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what it meant to them as they were starting this new Jesus movement that we now call the church. Here's what it meant. It meant that all that Jesus had taught, all that Jesus had done, all that Jesus had claimed, all of that because of the resurrection is now validated. The death of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of sins for the world. All of that is validated because of the resurrection. It meant that this risen king was actually worth following. And they would until the ends of the world. They would tell this story. The harder question is what does it mean for us? Two thousand. Years later, what does it mean for us? What does it mean to you and me if Jesus actually did rise from the dead? And I get it. You're in, I mean, we could talk about all the different arguments of why or why not Jesus did or did not rise from the dead. But I think we miss the point. The point is a personal reality that Jesus comes to you with. So I want to give you three ideas about the resurrection that I think are straight from Scripture that help us understand the significance of what this event is about. I want to talk about the resurrection and life beyond this life. This idea of a future hope. Then I want to talk about the idea that the resurrection is not just that. It has implications for the here and now. And then I want to talk about John 20 at the end where John says here's the whole reason I talked about this Jesus deal. So first of all, the resurrection and life beyond this life. Acts 4, verses 1 and 2, the, this new sort of Jesus follower movement is started. And it says this, uh, Peter and John were speaking to the people. The priest, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to the apostles. They were very upset by what the apostles were teaching the people. So here's what they're upset about. The apostles were saying that people can be raised from the dead. Sadducees didn't believe that. And it wasn't just like at that moment raised. It was there was some future reality where people would be restored to life, be made right. They're deeply concerned about this teaching. And here's why they were teaching it. They said this can happen because Jesus rose from the dead. The idea of a future hope is so important to our faith. A few months ago I had a run of about four funerals in six weeks and one of the things I realized as I watched families and I watched a community grieve around each one of those funerals was that without the idea of some future hope I can't imagine doing a funeral I can't imagine that this is just the end of it. And in the New Testament, when it's connected to the resurrection, the idea of a future hope is so important to the people of God. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about people dying, he often uses the language that they fell asleep. Talk about they fell asleep. And the reason he does is because when someone falls asleep, what eventually happens? They wake up. Scripture teaches that one day, the resurrection tells us that one day, God will come back, Revelation 21, God will come back and make things right again. New bodies, restored relationships. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. The old order of things has passed away, the new has come. The resurrection gives us the hope of a future life with God. Second thing is this. That life, that very life, that future life with God, where God comes back and is with his people, it says in Revelation, where things are made right again, that very life for anybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can experience that now. We can experience the fullness of that life in the here and now. Here's how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 5. When anyone lives in Christ, the new creation, that's what that is. Scripture talks about new creations. When things are restored, the new creation has come. You don't have to wait for it. It comes now. The old is gone. The new is here. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not just mundanely trying to make it through this life. We believe that if the resurrection is true, we are invited into the realities of a resurrection life, even now, in all the different ways that that can come across. I was reminded this last week, somebody posted a picture on Facebook, a friend not connected to our community, and it was of a family together, mom and a dad and two kids. And underneath was simply this, because of the resurrection. A family, a marriage restored, and the only thing that could do it in that situation was the idea that maybe life could come from death. We can experience the goodness of this life here and now. And the last thing is this. That life both in the future and now, because they're connected. All this is connected together. That future hope, that present reality is given to all who believe in Jesus Christ. It's sort of simple, hard to think about, and it's it's unbelievable, so it's hard to believe in. But if we're really honest, this whole story it's amazing yet ludicrous. This this whole story doesn't make a lot of sense in our minds, does it? In our logic, in our world. But think about it. Millions upon millions of people have staked their lives on this reality. Millions and millions of lives have been transformed. That's why we gather today. To think that the one who claimed to be king in the first century actually rose again and still wants to be king of your life and my life. And here's how John sums it up. In John chapter twenty thirty one, towards the end of the book, after all the stories about Jesus, after his death, after his resurrection, John just gives it away. He says this. I've written all of this. But these I have written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, If you believe this, you will have life because you belong to him. The word believe, I think, trips us up often. For some, it's this cognitive thing. If it doesn't make sense, I don't think I can believe it. I think we miss the point of believe. The word believe comes from this Greek word, "pistuo." It means to think, to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit. I like this last one. To place confidence in. Because we, we all place confidence in something. In a relationship, in something that we're trying to be or get. We place confidence in different ideologies. We place confidence in ourselves. And the beautiful simplicity of the resurrection, the beauty of the gospel is this, is we're invited to believe. Wherever you are. To experience that future hope that can be true in the present, the invitation is simply to believe. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised, your faith doesn't mean anything. Your sins have not been forgiven. In Romans 10, he says this, Say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. With your heart you believe and are made right with God. With your mouth, you say what you believe, and so you are saved. To place confidence in, you don't have to get it all. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to have it all figured out. But whatever confidence you can conjure up to place it in this story that if it's true, if it's true, it changes everything. Father, Father, Lord, I pray that you, you would reveal yourself true, alive to each one in this room, God. I want to invite you to pray with me, not out loud, but just with your eyes closed, to yourself. I think mean, for some of us in this room, we're here and we're skeptical, we're wandering, we're doubting. And God's okay with that. And I would encourage you to simply pray this. Living God, I'm curious. For some, you sort of grew up in the God thing. You've been away from it for a while. And you purposely came here this morning wondering if maybe there is something more. And I want to invite you to pray a prayer that simply is this. Living God, I'm back. And then finally, I think there's people in this room, this is the first time you've heard this story. There is a living God who loves you, who died for your sins, who rose again because this is not the end of the story. And I want to invite you to pray a prayer which is simply this, living God, I believe. Living God, I believe. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In your name, amen. Well, when we started planning Easter a few months ago, we realized it's on the first Sunday of the month, which in our tradition is Communion Sunday. And um, we sort of thought, do you do communion on Easter? You know, remember his death on the day that we're trying to remember he's alive. And we decided it's an absolutely beautiful day. To have communion and part of it is usually in communion we're pretty serious about it and you know it's that moment of really taking it in and it's, that's good um, but communion the lord's supper also points to- towards another event in the book of revelation it's called the wedding feast and one day when god comes back to make everything right we will have the best meal with our god with that living god the best food the best wine It'll be joy, it'll be celebration, bodies renewed, relationships restored. It'll be the family meal to end all family meals. So that's what we want to celebrate this morning, as we take communion. And especially for some of you who maybe just in this last couple moments have said, I'm believing in this story for the first time. Whatever belief I can muster up, I'm putting it in this story. This will be a really special event for you because you're remembering for the first time, what God is doing in your life from just a few minutes ago. So we're going to celebrate communion this morning and truly celebrate. And that's why Paul ended his passage in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about the body that is broken for us and the blood that is shed for us. He ends it by saying, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming. This isn't the end of the story. So the way we take communion across you here is... During the uh, songs here at the end, you'll be invited to come forward when you're ready. And you'll take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in a cup and they'll say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And it is for anyone who is believing in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be covenant, Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, whatever. It is for anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. If you cannot get out of your seat, please just stay where you're... Uh, where you're seated, raise your hand. And Mike Beck told our youth pastor we'll be walking around and he would love to come and serve you communion and gluten-free elements will be in the back. Would you please stand? And as we head into communion, would you read these words with me? Together. Give praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth and a living hope. This hope is living because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The gifts of God for you, the people of God.